You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. I read a story a long time ago. I cannot verify, I cannot verify its validity. So if it's not, forgive me. I'm letting you know up front, it may not be true. But the story goes like this. Alexander the Great one night couldn't sleep. And so he got up and he started to walk around the city walls. He came to an outpost where he found a young soldier. The soldier was sleeping. Now, Alexander the Great, in case you don't know this, he was a phenomenal leader. He'd conquered most of the known world at the time and unified it. It was amazing what he was able to accomplish. He could be a bit ruthless, though he was also somewhat merciful for a leader of that magnitude. When he saw this young man sleeping, the man, young man finally roused, and he looked at him and he said, Son, what is your name? Now, the soldier was terrified because Alexander the Great had made very clear, if you fall asleep while on duty, you could be arrested, put in prison, or possibly even killed. But the young man looked at Alexander the Great, and he said, Sir, my name is Alexander. Alexander the Great kind of took him back for a moment, looked at him and said, What was your name? This time, gathering himself together and with much dignity and respect, he looked at Alexander the Great, and he said, My name is Alexander. And Alexander the Great had this phenomenal response. He looked at him and he said, son, it's time to either change your name or change your actions. I think that's a good, maybe even a great illustration for what I want to talk about today. And what we're going to look at today is this whole concept, this whole issue of what's called holiness. Holiness. Now, I want to say up front depending on your church experience, will dictate the ears with which you hear and interpret this message. If you grew up in a church that maybe was a little bit legalistic or uh, um, always, always, always talking about the holiness of God, you may hear today's message in such a way that you interpret everything I'm saying as you're failing and you're not good enough and you're never gonna measure up. You hear me? But if you grew up in a church that maybe never talked about holiness and only talked about the grace and the mercy of God, you may hear this message and say, man, Matt really seems to be legalistic today. My hope as we walk through this text in Ephesians is simply to be one thing and one thing only, and that is biblical. To be as honest as the text is honest. To go everywhere the text goes and no further, but no less. And so my prayer and my encouragement to you is to open up your heart, open up your ears, and hear what the Lord may be saying to you today through this. And I will do everything I can to give you a black and white application before we're done so that no one walks away feeling guilty, but rather convicted. And the last thing I'll say before we jump into our first piece is this, that what I just said is huge. When Satan wants to beat you down and make you feel worthless, He will make you feel guilty. And there is a significant difference between guilt and conviction. Satan will often make you feel like you don't measure up, you're not good enough, you're never gonna get it right, you blew it, you blew it again. And so he'll make you feel this general, I'm worthless kind of sense. Usually you can tell the difference, not always, between Satan's voice and God's voice in your life simply by this one thing. Do you know what you're supposed to do next? Because when God wants to bring about change in your life, it's not vague. 
Now, sometimes you may get a sense from the Holy Spirit, God's about to do something in me. I'm not sure what it is yet. He just hasn't revealed it to you. That's a whole different thing than I'm worthless. I'm not worth anything because I blew it or I've blown it before. That's Satan. When God wants to bring about change, he will tell you, this is the thing I'm talking about, and this is what you need to do about it. So with that, let's take a look. We're going to pick up where Todd left off last week. Let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24. <coughs> it says this. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. You were actually created in Jesus Christ to be like God. Now, don't misunderstand. This is not like the Mormon church. This is not perhaps like Jehovah's Witnesses. This is not literally if you try hard enough and you do better and the more holy and righteous you get, you will become a baby God, a little God. One day when you die, you can have your own planet and all of your virgin wives and spouses will go with you. It always seems to be male-centric. You ever notice that? That's not what this is talking about. What this is talking about, what Paul is simply trying to say, I think is so excellently captured in this quote by Tony Merida. It says this, Paul's words are clear. You were darkness. Now you are light. So become what you are. Huge emphasis and underline right here. Become what you are. See, when you come to Jesus Christ, he changed your name and your identity. So now when God looks at you by the blood of Christ, he says, that one is mine. I've marked them for me. I've sealed their eternity through the Holy Spirit. I moved them from darkness to life, from lost to found, from dead to alive. Do you hear how these analogies play off each other? There's this kind of uh, opposite. You were this, you are now this. And the teaching of Ephesians 5, as we're about to look at it simply, so be what God already made you to be. There is a huge difference between salvation and sanctification, but the two go together. Salvation is that moment when you say to God, I want to go all in on you. I want to be what you, what you say I could be. I need saved. I need redeemed. I don't want to live under the wrath, the judgment of God anymore. I want to be freed. And you say, I want to receive Christ. Now, depending on your church background, you may have prayed a prayer, you may have said a statement, you may have done different things. Here at Kingsway, we say the moment you're ready to do that, it's time to be baptized because the point of baptism is to mark the day, to have that moment where you can say, I remember the moment I became one with Christ. Maybe that day is today for you as it was for Mia earlier. Wasn't that awesome? But Paul goes on and he simply wants you to get this. You are a child, a dear child of God. That's what you are. See, the moment you do that, your identity has changed from outside the family to inside the family. Paul earlier in Ephesians said, you all are adopted as sons and daughters. He literally bought you with the life of Jesus and brought you into the family. And you are now a dear child. So that's salvation. But see, once you get saved, there's still those old ways that are just in your head and in your heart, right? Have you ever noticed that a lot of times, even though you've become one with God through Christ, 
You still struggle with being angry or not forgiving or perhaps gossiping or being bitter or greedy or whatever it is. And you think, man, I remember when I, when I gave my life to Christ and, and yet I still do some of these same things. Well, part of it is you're learning to become like Christ. Do you know how that happens? It happens by the spirit that God places in you in your salvation. It's his work in you, you two partnering together, you and the Holy Spirit to make you more like God. And that's what we call sanctification. Or you may have heard the word sanctify, depending on your church background. That's the process that God is changing you. So first thing, be patient. God is. Remember what this, the, the New Testament tells us? That Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Paul says in Philippians, he who began a good work and you will be sure to bring it to completion. And Jesus in Revelation has said, I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I'm the first, I'm the last. And I'm everything in between. When you parents had dear children, do you remember when they began to walk? Did you look at your child who tried to stand up and the legs are shaking and they're hanging on to everything they could find and go, you're an idiot. You really can't walk yet? I mean, it's been nine months. Or when they stood up, did you start to go, yeah, there you go, buddy, come on. And then when they took their first step and fell, you didn't go, you're never going to figure this out, loser. <laughs> now, some of you are too sarcastic, and you probably did, <laughs> but you shouldn't have. Or did you go about five steps away, two steps away, and go, come here, come here, come here, you've got this. Get the camera, get the camera. They're about to figure this out. Because, see, that's what we do with children when they're learning to walk. But somehow in the church, we start to think, that sin, which is never okay, is God's opportunity to lambast us with accusation and condemnation. So that would mean that every single dad in this room is a better father than God the Father. Because you would never do that to your children. And I think that's probably blasphemy. There's absolutely no way I'm a better dad than he is. Everything I'm learning to do as a dad is coming from his example to me. And so he's patient and merciful and yet not dismissive. Because see, the opposite ex ex extent of that is that all-permissive grace. Well, because of grace, it doesn't matter what I do. And praise God for grace. Grace, grace, God's grace is greater than all my sins. So therefore, it doesn't matter what I do. Oh, no, it matters tremendously. It matters so much that God crucified his one and only son to pay for your sin. Every sin matters. But it matters in that it's covered in the blood of Jesus on the cross. And we hold these two truths together in both hands. That's why Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Imitate God, therefore, in, what's the word there? Everything. Everything? You mean how I can do, conduct my business? How I close that sales deal? The phrases I use so that I'm not manipulating or lying in any way or twisting the truth to seal the deal? You mean when I'm at school, I'm not cheating off the person next to me because I can't remember the answers. I stayed up too late playing video games, eating Oreos and Doritos. 
Yeah, and everything you do, every little thing matters. Now, some of you, again, because you came from a legalistic background, uh, you think perfectionism is the only way to God. And so therefore, if you don't keep your yard perfectly right, then you don't love God because you didn't take it seriously. And you need to go study grace a little bit, all right? The point here is simply this. Are we walking in step with the Spirit? When he says move, we move. When he says go, we go. When he says stop, we stop. When he says don't, we don't. And you'll know, one of the ways you'll know God's good, pleasing, and perfect will is to surrender your body to him and say, here I am, God. How do I become more like you? Look at verse 2. Verse 2. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. The he here is Jesus. Jesus loved us and he offered his own life as a sacrifice, a pleasing aroma to God. That's why Paul in Romans 12 tells us to do the same. Now, this whole concept of being a dearly loved child may be very difficult for you. One of the greatest tragedies of America, where we are today, is that roughly 50% of marriages fall apart, leaving a whole bunch of you in this room wounded from your parents' first marriage falling apart. What I'm, everything I'm about to say right now is in no way intended to wound you deeper if you have personally had a marriage end. It's not, but it's a statement of reality. As Satan has attacked the family unit, the family unit has fallen apart, and it's left an entire generation of people wondering where they stand with their earthly mom and dad. And so therefore, where do I stand with my heavenly father, who is represented both male and female, because we were made in the image of him, male and female. It's what the scriptures tell us. So church, sometimes this message is incredibly difficult for some of you sitting out there, hurt and wounded deeply, especially by a broken relationship with your earthly dad. And so if your earthly dad was too busy with work and his own hobbies or his own addictions to be engaged in your life, you tend to view God as too busy to be engaged in your life. If your dad was aggressive or abusive or mean or harsh or name-called, you may have a tendency to wonder if God is aggressive or abusive or mean or harsh. And so when you read certain stories in the Bible, you go, wow, God was just like my dad. But you ignore all the other stories in the Bible. Do you see how this plays out? So some of you, when I say you are his dear child, you go, <laughs> not sure I believe it. And Paul wants you to understand how precious and important you are. So what do I do with all that? I mean, how, what does it mean to be a child of God? Well, it means this. Ready? Here we go. Become like a child of God. That was not deep or profound, was it, at all? Like nobody went, oh, I get it. Now, see, when, when you understand what you are, then you're simply becoming what you are. You are a child of God. It's already true about you. You don't earn your child of God status. You don't buy your child of God status. You are a child of God. So be a child of God. Act like what you are. When I was a youth pastor, I would talk about the passages we're about to read. And I remember a couple times I did this message. I literally put a piece of tape up the wall straight across from where I was speaking. And I put the tape all the way down the floor. It wasn't quite this big of a room. And all the way up on stage and all the way back behind me. And I stood and preached almost the entire message on one side of the line. And I said this. What many teenagers do, it's what I did as a teenager, it's what many of you, your kids are doing as teenagers, is that I would ask this question. How far do I have to go before I cross that line? And God says, uh-uh too far. 
And so we play this game with God. How close can I get to sinning before I'm really too far? And what I would say, and I'd say it now, I said it then, is this the wrong question. If your question is, what can I get away with before dad will get mad? I'm not actually asking, how do I honor and please and love dad? The better question to ask yourself is, as a child of God, what does it mean to live like a child of God? How do I live like a child of God? And this line is kind of irrelevant because the point is not what I'm not doing and am doing. The point is, am I walking in faithfulness to what God has revealed to me? And part of the way God reveals is through his word. Literally, what we're about to read is Paul saying, this is what children of God do, and this is what children of God don't do. But it's not everything. Let me show it to you so I can make it clear. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. Let there be no sexual immorality impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes, these are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Go back to verse 3, if you will, put that up there for just a second. This is what we would call, in biblical terms, a vice list. Now, Paul has many vice lists in his books, and the lists never match up completely. Why? Because Paul, there's absolutely no way he could write out every situation for every person for all time. There's no way he could cover them all. Could you imagine? That's what the Old Testament law was. It was, okay, and if this happens, and if this happens, and if this happens, here's how you do it, here's how you do it, here's how you do it. And then people found other situations that the law didn't deal with. Because that's life. You can never legislate morality. But what you can do is have the principle buried in your heart, not how far can I go before God gets angry, but instead, how do I live in such a way as to please my Lord? And there's a huge difference in the question the word there for sexual immorality is the Greek word pornaya. It's where we get our word pornography. We took our word from that word. It's what I would call a junk drawer word. Does anybody have a junk drawer when you were growing up as a kid? Anybody? You know, it's like your milk goes in the fridge, your crackers go in the cabinet, your cans went in the lazy season, or however your situation was. You probably had a toolbox for dad somewhere. But then there was the junk drawer. And it was kind of the, I don't know what to do with these paper clips. I'm not sure what to do with this thing. I got an extra screwdriver just in case I ever need it in the kitchen. And it all gets shoved in there. And so what happens? You can't open the drawer anymore, right? Then you need a second junk drawer or it's time to get rid of some junk. Pornaya is a junk drawer Greek word, meaning it means a whole bunch of things. The word adultery is very clear as to its implications and what it means. But sexual immorality, the pornaya word, is kind of this all-covering, it means anything that's dishonoring and displeasing to the Lord. So when my heart is, what can I get away with, that word's not clear enough for me, so I'm just allowed to do whatever I think I should. But when I ask a different question, Father, how do I honor you? I am your child. As your dear child whom you love, how ought I to act? I'm no longer going out on a date or talking to my secretary at work or doing a business deal when I'm out of town or flipping on my phone or the internet and going, well, the Bible didn't emphatically say I can't do this. 
And sexual immorality, that word would cover almost all of those situations because they're all thrown into it. It's the idea of, and the NIV says it this way, let there be not even a hint of sexual immorality among you. So maybe one way to just simply discern the situation you're wondering, is this wrong or is this right? Maybe just ask this question, is there a hint of sexual immorality in this decision I'm about to make? And if there is, then I just need to get as far away from it as possible. And just one more piece to take it further. If you're not sure, but in your spirit you feel convicted, then follow your convictions. Spouses, if you're not sure, and you're, you're sure, but your spouse isn't sure, you go where they are. It doesn't matter if your Christian freedom allows you to do what you're believing you can do. If they're not there yet, as, a, as somebody who has surrendered your body and said, my body is not my own, it's now yours, you honor where they are and pray and wait for God to move them. And again, you're like, well, what exactly are you talking about, Pastor? Well, some of you know exactly because you're dealing with it, but it's impossible for me, like Paul, to give every situation out there. That's why it's about understanding your identity. I'm just going to say this for just a brief moment. The biggest problem we have today with the gender issues going on in America is that we have wrapped up gender in identity, and we have confused things in our sexuality. I read this long article from a blog from a man uh, who is openly homosexual and is not Christian and does not love the Lord. And he said, we've messed this up. We're the first culture in the history of the world to mix gender and identity together. And he would agree with that position. But he said, this is not the way we ought to be looking at this whole discussion. What are you? You're a child, a dear child of God. Tony again says it this way, ultimately, pornaya, sexual immorality, is idolatry. Much of the ancient world had sexual practices wrapped up in their idolatry, as in Ephesus. Paul does not specifically call pornaya idolatry, as he does with the sin of greed, but sexual sin is the result of not honoring God. Paul shows us this progression in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, if you want to read it later. Your life, don't miss this, is an overflow of your heart. Your sexual sin problem is fundamentally a worship problem. To be clear, the Bible is not anti-sex. Amen. Rather, it is pro-intimacy within the covenant of marriage. If you do not get the worship problem solved, you will never enjoy the beautiful gift of sex the way God intended it. What else are you? Well, according to Ephesians, we're about to look at in a moment, you are God's light. The concept of light and dark is a really, really big deal in the Bible times. Part of it is because it's in the Greek uh, culture, the philosophical culture, but it's a really big deal. Here's how Paul says, Ephesians 5, verse 6. I pulled the NIV here, just in case you're confused what translation we're. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light. So live as children of light. This is become what you are 101. You are light, so act like it. 
But notice how he now blends children and light together in one. You are a dear child of God. You were once in darkness. You were once outside the family. And now, now God has completely changed your identity. Your identity is not wrapped up in your sexuality. Your identity is not wrapped up in your gender. Your identity is wrapped up in the fact that you are a child of light given to you by God when you came to Christ in faith and trusted him and said, here I am, God. Change me, save me, do something in me, but don't leave me how you found me. And Paul says, God is doing that work in you. So what do you do? Well, it's really simple. It's just as profound as the last one. Become like God's light. Start asking questions like, what does darkness do? What should light do? What would God do? Remember, all of this is wrapped up in imitating God. It's becoming like him. And if you look at a situation and say, man, I really can't see God doing this, then you probably shouldn't be doing it. And I know that sounds really simple because it is. And I, again, guys, there's this extremely difficult line going down the middle of this room right now. This line that some of you are going, yes, preach it, because legalism is your background. It's in your heart and in your head. And some of you are going, man, this guy just doesn't get it yet, because you think I don't understand grace. Then you have not listened to the last seven weeks of messages. I understand grace. I walk in it. I just want to know what pleases the Lord, and I want to do that. And to be honest, some of us might have a conviction deep in our heart that something is not okay that another believer doesn't have that same conviction. And there's actually a chance you're both right. Paul says that some of you may be convicted by the Spirit not to do something. Don't look down on what he says is maybe a weaker brother, somebody who doesn't understand how freeing grace is. Don't look down on them and frown on them or mock them or make fun of them. Instead, be patient with them and honor where God has drawn the line for them. There may be a reason in their life, in their heart, in their family, with their friends, they need to take the stance they're taking and you don't need to. So then instead of pointing a finger at somebody else, just honor them. How do we become light? Paul goes on. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 10 through 14, the very first part of 14. It says this. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. It is shameful even to talk about the things that ungodly people do in secret. But their evil intentions will be exposed when the light shines on them. For the light makes everything visible. I don't know if you've ever been caving or spelunking. I've been caving. I don't think I've ever been professional enough to call it spelunking. But we had some helmets with some lights and some lights and some more lights and then some more lights just in case those lights all went out. And I remember I've done this a few times, always in Kentucky or Indiana, it seems like, because kind of the southern part, there's a bunch of caves down there. And one of these adventures I went on, it might have been Mammoth Cave, but I can't remember now. We were going to go into a tight spot. In order to test the tight spot, they took us into this really squeezed hole. And if you could fit through the hole, then you could fit in the spot. And so I fit through the hole because I was a little more svelte then than I am now. And uh, I'm pretty sure I couldn't fit in now. And so we get into the actual spots, and it's kind of like single file, head to foot. 
And I don't know the person in front of me who had really smelly feet. And I remember I'm in there, and there are inches, inches all the way around my body, except for my chest. I'm on my chest, and you're kind of crawling. You got your flashlight in one hand. And at one point, we stopped. I think somebody got stuck. They undervalued their girth. They weren't in, they were in our group, but they weren't with me. I didn't know them. And I remember being trapped for what felt like an eternity. It probably was 10, 15 minutes. But literally, I'm surrounded by rock with people behind me and people in front of me. And I'm getting really anxious about the amount of oxygen that I have. And then it dawns on me, if the earth shifts inches, I'm going to be trapped or crushed. In a moment, I nearly started having a panic attack and there's nowhere to go. Some of you are having one right now. (laughs) John Knoll, are you in the room? (laughs) I literally just started talking myself down. Okay, just calm down. Take a deep breath. You're going to be okay. What if there's not enough oxygen? That's okay. You can breathe carbon dioxide. How long is it you can breathe carbon dioxide? How long have we been in here? Oh, man. I think we're running out of time. I am feeling lightheaded. And literally, that's what's going through my mind. I remember in a moment, I started getting anxious about would I have enough light. So I turned off my light. Pitch black. That's when your mind really starts to race. Paul is actually playing on this very analogy, and he's saying, outside of Christ, your life, your life is filled with darkness. Now, some of you remember what that felt like, right? Some of you grew up in Christian homes. You've heard about Jesus your whole life. Your decision to receive Christ was walking in the faith that you had always been trained in, but that wasn't true for all of you. In fact, many of you, had a season, a painful season where you were far from God. Do you remember wondering when there was ever going to be light at the end of the tunnel? Do you remember wondering what it felt like to go to bed at night and wondering if this is the best there is? If God had left you or quit on you or abandoned you? Wonder why all of your greatest efforts seem to be hitting a wall? Do you remember that? Because if you've never experienced that, then it's really hard to relate with what Paul is saying. I want to be clear. I want my kids to have no testimony. That's my goal for their life. I want for them to have the most boring testimony. I grew up with a great mom and a great dad, and uh, while my parents weren't perfect, they worked really hard to love us and show us Christ, and I received Christ at a young age, and um, I want them the most boring testimony ever. And so I married a great you know, woman, and, and we had phenomenal kids, and it was, I want them to have the most boring testimony. I want people to be bored and go, oh, that's boring. That's what I want for their life. And I hope everybody in here would have that kind of testimony, except if that's the case, and that means people who are living in cave-like darkness do not understand the hope that they have in Christ, the hope. Because what Paul is trying to get to is people who are apart from Christ, it's shameful to even talk about what you did in darkness. You know, before your mind had those moral boundaries to hem it in and say, I shouldn't go here, I shouldn't do this, how everything was open to you, I remember reading an article not too long ago about the dangers of pornography in the lives of teenagers. Young men, and even young women, the, growest, the fastest growing demographic of people getting hooked on pornography is women. So some of you know what I'm talking about. And listen, this isn't just about pornography. It's just one of the major ways that Satan gets us and hooks us. We're like a fish on a line and we eat thinking we're going to get a meal and instead we're hooked and we can't get out. And the men I read about in this article, young boys roughly between the ages of 10 and 13. So parents, do the math of where your kids are. 
will stumble upon pornography, but what they're stumbling on is so foul and grotesque. But it creates this shame-filled curiosity where they start to wonder why the girl in the picture looked happy while that was happening. So they keep looking and they keep looking and they keep looking. Things that teenagers and young men are seeing today are things you couldn't even get access to 30 years ago. You had to find some black market something somewhere to buy it and with the shame of purchasing this from somebody else selling it. And today, all you have to do is search it and it's there. And in fact, you don't even have to search it and it's there. Church, I'm saying this because what Paul is trying to get through to us is we are living in dark days. Do not look at the darkness and mistake it for light. Did you know that there's a big difference between heat and light? A big difference. Things can be hot and burn you, but they're not producing light that can lead you out of the cave. The danger in this conversation, again, guys, is the legalism and the grace. The legalistic side says, I'm not good enough, I'm failed, I blew it again. You may have even blown it yesterday, last night, or Friday, or something like that, and thought to yourself, I'm just going to be a failure the rest of my life. God will never love me, I might as well quit. And if that's the case, that is not the message that you need to be hearing. You are God's dear child. Surrender, come to him, let him wash you clean. But the other side of this, and you need to hear this, is where this is where the conversation gets really hard with grace. Because some of you are abusing grace in your lives. And I'm calling you out of that place and saying, don't go there. Thomas um, Yoder Neufeld, who I've quoted many times throughout the series, he says this. In this kind of situation, then, grace becomes the absolution for persistent stumbling rather than empowerment to walk like Christ in imitation of God. And when we do that, the messianic character of the church is fatally subverted and the spirit is grieved. If you don't understand all those kind of big words, essentially what he just said is when we abuse grace, the church loses its power because there's nothing to identify us as different than the rest of the world. But when we walk in grace and grace covers our sin and forgives our sin and it changes us and empowers us and equips us, we no longer have to act like the world acts, talk like the world talks, and think like the world thinks. And we're not abusing it. We're not becoming legalists and we're not becoming gracious. I just made that up in case you couldn't tell. We're simply surrendering. Because don't miss this. If you get nothing else out of today, get this. Light transforms darkness, never the other way around. You can't turn on the dark, can you? Back in the day, they don't do this anymore for, I don't know, some political agenda reason, I'm sure. I'm just kidding. When you would go into uh, Mammoth Cave, this massive cave, probably roughly the size of this building or bigger, I don't know, they would go in and they would shut off all the lights and they would let your eyes adjust to the darkness and you literally could hold your hand in front of your face. I've done this. I poke myself in the eye. Because I was like, whoa, this is, you can't tell. And back in the day, they used to just light a match. In the center of a massive room that is pitch black. And you know what happened after your eyes adjusted? The light transformed the darkness into light. That is what God is calling us to do. When the light of Christ flooded your lives, it chased away the darkness. And while there's still sometimes some dark corners that need the light to be flooded there, the way we do that, Paul already told us, we expose the dark corners. 
so that the light of Christ can chase the darkness out and turn it into light. It's about transformation. It's not a game of hide and seek. And not only that, but don't miss this. The whole reason that God has flooded your life with light is so that you would chase out the darkness in the lives of others. Take a look, Ephesians chapter five, verse 15. So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. We are to expose the evil deeds of darkness. If they're in us, then we expose them. We take them to other Christian brothers and sisters, to people we've hurt and offended, and we expose them and say, I've, I've wronged you, I've hurt you. I'm, I'm not facing the truth about this situation. This thing is owning me, it's controlling me. I'm living for it instead of for you. I have many times had to take video games out of my kids' lives for a significant period, and they ask me every day, can we play video games today? And I say, no, son, until daddy believes that this thing is not controlling you, but you were controlling it. We aren't playing again. And every day you ask me, tells me it's still controlling you. And so they're learning, hey, I want to be in control of video games. They're like, are video games evil? Well, it depends. Is it your master or not? See, it could be true for anything. Paul says, I will not allow anything to master me, anything to master me. It could be your caffeine addiction, cigarettes, alcohol, you name it. There's any number of things, food, exercise for some of you. Anything that's owning you, it's controlling you instead of you controlling it. It's really just an opportunity to let darkness take over your light. So what do we do? We expose it. We expose it in ourselves and we expose it in others. And this is how we seize opportunities. Making the most of every opportunity is literally the Greek word exagorazo. And I probably botched that, but Whatever. And it literally means this, snapping up all chances at a bargain that are available. Any women in the room love to go bargain shopping? Any husbands in the room hate when your wives go bargain shopping? So I'm a huge bargain shopper. I was raised in a bargain shopping kind of home. We went through financial stress in my life as a child, and we kind of started doing that season. I just love it. So I do. I'm kind of weird. Um, Anyway, that's a whole other sermon for another day. But the point here is this is exactly what it means. Like you go to the store and you're like, what? They're selling that for that price? I'll take all 1,000 of them. <laughs> I'll just wear the same shirt every day for the next three years. And I'll give 50 away to my friends. Like that's kind of what it's talking about. Like you see an opportunity and you can't pass it up. You're literally snapping up all the chances at a great bargain. And the point of this then, don't miss this, the point of this is first for us and also for others. So first for us. The reason that we can allow the light to transform the darkness is because we already live in abundant grace. The more you sin, the more grace increases. You can't out-sin it. So because we live in abundant grace with God and we should live in abundant grace with each other, it shouldn't be hard to go to somebody and say, I lied to you, I hurt you, I wronged you, and I'm sorry. Because we already know with God it's abundantly forgiven. It doesn't mean they will, but that's a their problem. That's not a you problem. And the other reason is because we get to pursue darkness in the lives of others and love them enough to say, I don't know if you see this, but I see this in you. 
And I know God wants better for you. I saw what, how you treated your spouse. I saw how you treated your kids. I see what you're doing. I see how that thing owns you. And I believe that God wants better for you. I love you. We actually get to expose the darkness with the truth. Notice this, and I'm almost done, I promise. Notice this. Three times Paul says the same thing in different ways. So first, he says in verse 10, carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Okay, so I don't know what to do. I got this situation, Pastor Matt, and if I could just have two hours one-on-one with you, you could tell me what to do. You don't need me to tell you what to do. Here's what you need to do. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Well, how do I know what that is? Well, I would dig into God's word first and start there. I would start there, and I would pray about it. And maybe this one will help. Verse 15, so be careful how you live. Because these are dark days. We live in a dark world. America's the greatest nation on the face of the planet, and there is tons of darkness inside it, and it needs more light. It needs us to expose racism and all of its evil ways. It needs us to fight for the, for the sake of good against the darkness. It needs men and women willing to make sacrifices, physical and financial, in order to transform things. So be careful how you live. In fact, he goes on and clarifies again in verse 17. Don't act thoughtlessly. As if it doesn't matter. Well, I woke up today and I did what I did yesterday. Instead, understand what the Lord wants you to do, but I don't understand. It's not that difficult. As a child of light, what would God have you do? And if you're not clear, study the word of God. Ask a friend until you get clarity. The problem is usually not that you don't know what to do. It's that you don't want to do it. It's that you like the thing more than you love God. And I know that hurts to say. I know it hurts to say. But I just want to share a little light with you. Jesus says, what does it benefit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his very soul? Whatever it is you're struggling with that God's been speaking to you in this message, is it costing you your soul? I'm not talking about are you losing your salvation. That's not what I'm talking about. Do you sense darkness and death coming into your life as a byproduct of this thing that you're fighting to hang on to? If so, I'm telling you, God's light wants to transform it. Thomas Yoder Newfeld again says this, and I'll close with this. Time is not neutral, but it is laden with opportunities to be seized. Hence the term there is kairos, which literally means opportune time, instead of chronos, which is time as a duration. Just pause his quote, leave that up there. See, in the Greek, there's two words for time, kairos and chronos. Chronos is minutes, hours, days. That's not the word that Paul uses. We're not talking about the days are getting evil. He's talking about the opportunities around you. Seize the opportunity around you. How do we do that? To watch carefully how one walks is thus to purchase every opportunity to expose the darkness and thus to participate in the redemption of time, the transformation of darkness into light. When others look at you, do they see a candle with no flame? 
Because I think that's often what happens in churches in America. The flame has gone out, but the candle's still there. This is why three to 4,000 churches shut their door every year in America. Let that sink in. But if you were just to light your candle and carry it with you everywhere you go, where might you be able to share light and light another's candle? Through your transformation, through your changed life, through your encouragement, through you sharing the same grace that was given to you with others. But remember, grace always has a counterpart called truth. What I want to do right now is give you a chance to wrestle with God. And um, I'm going to ask our communion servers to go out the back. And we're just going to pray and whatever you need to talk to God about, do it. Listen, real quick, I know everybody's wrestling and getting ready. Um, If you have darkness that you need to expose, I want you to spend this communion time asking God to tell you how you need to expose this area of your life and who you need to expose it to. And then don't argue with him about whatever he says next. If you are somebody in this room who maybe that's not your story, but God has been placing on your mind a neighbor, a friend, a coworker, maybe somebody even in your past, Somebody you need to go, with, go to and share the grace and the truth of Jesus Christ with because your light is going to chase out their darkness. I'm just asking ask you to pray and say, God, would you bring to, name, bring to mind a name or God, tell me exactly how to do it. And now you're gonna look for an opportunity for God to create a door for you to walk through and say, okay, God, I'm gonna seize this opportunity. I'm not gonna waste it. I'm not gonna lose it. I'm gonna let my light light the world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, oh God, please bind Satan right now. I know he's already bound by the church, but I just mean literally in this room in our hearts. God, may those who feel legalistically guilty and don't know what to do just feel beat up. Father, I pray that you would build them up. You tell us that you will lift up the humble. So God, let us all be humble. God, but for those in this room who maybe their their stubborn pride or, or their desire for this thing is holding on to them and it's owning them and they're refusing to step forward in faith and trust you, God, I pray that your grace would overwhelm them. God, I pray that you would flood your light into their life so profoundly, Father, that they would uh, uh, open their arms up instead of clenching to themselves and not trusting you, but they just open their arms and would you lead them and guide them into your ways. God, transform this church that we might be a light in this community and around the world, sharing what you have given to us in Jesus' name.